Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader Podcast is Lee Steinberg. Lee is a premier sports agent, best-selling author, and chairman of Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Holdings. He has represented many of the most successful athletes and coaches in sports, including the number one overall pick in the NFL draft eight times. He's also credited as being the inspiration behind the movie Jerry Maguire. Lee, thanks for coming on today. Pleasure to be here. So take me back in time. What was what was little Lee interested in? <laughs> little Lee grew up in Los Angeles, was a big sports fan, loved the Dodgers, loved the Rams, loved the Lakers, loved UCLA football and basketball. Uh, was a budding journalist who produced his own newspaper for the block I lived on, later went on to do the same thing in junior high and high school, was um, always the president of whatever school I was in, so I was always involved in student government and did a lot of writing and a lot of speaking and a lot of politicking. What were some of those sports that you actually played growing up as a kid? Like, what were, what were you really passionate about? Oh, I love baseball, and I love football, and I love basketball, and but I also love running. So when I got to high school, I was track and cross country. Um, I learned how to suffer well, and uh, as an athletic uh, <coughs> quality, and so uh, I love playing all sports, tennis, the rest. Yeah, I uh, punished myself doing cross country my freshman year, so not quite sure. I don't exactly run very lightly on the concrete. I'm more pound and punish the concrete. Yes, exactly. But again, anything that involves endurance or basic hand-eye coordination, strength and speed were not my forte. (laughs) But anything that was bowling, darts, throwing a pass, uh, anything that involved uh, being straight and dropping into a device was something I could do. So let's go forward a little bit. So I'm a, I don't know if I told you this before, but I'm a, a fellow Berkeley grad. So what actually drew you to the lovely campus of UC Berkeley? Well, I had grown up in a UCLA family. My parents had five degrees between them from UCLA and I was a Bruin baby. So I went my freshman year to UCLA. But it was the 1960s and long hair and tie-dye and rock music and anti-Vietnam were all happening. And it was happening in Berkeley. So it was the most exciting place I could imagine to be. And again, was a very different time. People were afraid of being drafted because the war in Vietnam was going on. So there were big protests and we had Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and, and The Cream and Janis Joplin and all sorts of interesting alternative ways to look at the world. So 
it was the place I wanted to be. And then at the end, I was student body president at the point that the governor of California was Ronald Reagan. And every time we demonstrate, he would crack down. And I learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating from dealing with governor and later President Reagan. But it was uh, a really fun time. And I went on to law school at Berkeley. So I had I never wanted to leave. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Ronald Reagan in terms of what you learned. So what were some of those things you actually learned from negotiating with him or against him? Well, it was an understanding basically of leverage and power that at the end of the day, he had police, National Guard, that it was an unequal contest in the streets. And there had to be a way to work more inside the system that made sense. I learned about listening skills, how to draw another human being out and understand the world from their perspective, how to get in another person's heart and mind and see the world the way they see it, and the ability to define values. So how important to me or another person is short-term economic gain or long-term economic security or family considerations or geographical or spiritual considerations or having high profile. It was really important to have an internal inventory of what values were critical to me and then be able to look into another person's eyes and be able to craft win-win scenarios. Yeah, it's really interesting in terms of just the importance of values and also negotiating. I think a lot of people just start with the end of what they're trying to achieve versus actually taking that internal inventory, as you said, of yourself, but also probably of your your adversary or the person that you're you're negotiating against. You really have to do extensive research. And men, I'm sure every any female listener to this podcast will agree, don't share their innermost feelings quite as easily as women do. So you have to peel back the layers of the onion. You have to get established trust in a way where someone will be comfortable to reveal not their surface responses, but what they on a deeper level care about. And so you have to go deeper and deeper in uh, probing that and not to be totally focused on how someone looks or what you think they might feel, but who they really are. So how do you do that? How do you, practically speaking, try to get a sense for what's really important to somebody, what matters versus what they may be presenting on the external? It's learning how to listen and to view the text and the subtext, to be able to read what words are coming out and then have a sense of what someone is really trying to communicate. It means establishing an atmosphere of trust around another person so they'll feel comfortable and safe in revealing who they really are. Yeah, I heard you quoted somewhere, maybe it was on another podcast, you said something about that as is providing space perhaps to let people to uh, reveal who they are on the inside. Do you mind just talking a little bit more about that? Because I think it's a really interesting perspective. It's about finding trust and commonality. What things do you have in common with that other human being? And can that be a pathway into being deeper? Can you agree on values of what's important? Can we agree that making a difference in the world's important and being compassionate and a good person is important? Can we 
agree that we're only on this earth for a finite amount of time. And ultimately, what's really important are the values that my father gave me, which were treasure relationships, especially family, and try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. Do we have commonality in that? And can we build on the commonalities between us so that you feel safe and not defensive in terms of talking about where you are? And so sometimes it involves being transparent first, being more open first, being vulnerable first, so that the other person feels comfortable to do the same thing. Yeah, just such a, so much great advice that I think more people should take, uh, be aware of, is just start with something you have in common, because we tend to just go, oh, we're just so different. And I know I've done that, made that mistake in my own life, where I met someone through an event, and I thought, wow, this person and I are probably the most opposite of anybody else in the room. And I found out six months later, actually, in this one example I'm thinking of in my head, she and I were probably most similar. Right. And and you can let physical cues, the way someone's hair is, or, or their beard, or their tattoos, or their way of dress, put you into a stereotypical mode in terms of what you think of that person. And yet, they may be very different inside. So you've got to have patience and the willingness to be present. So what I think is important is that this moment that we're sharing together is every bit as important as any other moment in life. And so many people live in the past. Well, my old friends and what I did before, that was reality. This is just temporary. Or they live in the future. Uh, tomorrow will be very different. You know, tomorrow uh, things will be different. Well, we just have this moment. And if you want to get the most out of every moment in life, I'm not looking at a cell phone. I don't know what time it is. I'm not really sure what day it is. All I'm doing is listening to your voice and and trying to make sure that we're tuned in. But that's incredibly challenging. I know for myself, just in so many more distractions now, like, how did you get to that point? Like, what are some of the the lessons, maybe some hard lessons you learned to actually get you to a point where you really could be truly present, which I imagine also helps you be that active listener? I think that when you hear people talk about the concept of killing time, that I realize looking at mortality, that time runs out. So that if you're sitting at an airport, and the flight's delayed for an hour and a half, and your concept is killing time. Well, take a book with you that you can read. Get on your phone and communicate. Use that time productively instead of thinking that way. Be open to the possibilities that this moment might have. You don't know. Part of what makes life exciting is that you're never really sure, but you have to be open to it. I see people walking down the street all the time, coming out of a gym with their cell phone, instead of talking to each other or being present in that moment, they're in the cell phone. Well, let me ask you, did World War III break out? Is your parent about to die? What could be so critically important on that little machine that you're not aware of what's around you and people around you and interacting and and all the rest? It's... uh, someone calls your cell phone, they're making a request for your time. 
they don't have the divine right to talk to you if you're involved with uh, something else. So the point is, this is our moment together and, and let's maximize it. No, I love that. And I'm just curious, and I don't mean just to keep going down this path, but it's hard for people. I know it's hard for me and it, it continues to be hard for me trying to be present for my children and just the people in my life. But was there anything in specific or a situation beyond just thinking about your own mortality that really allowed you to just to be truly present in all moments? Well, there also is the concept of not slighting people. And so you could be out in public and someone walks up and that interaction is critically key to them. And by not being focused, you're in an airport, you're out to dinner, you're walking along the street. And by not being focused on that person, you could hurt their feelings in a really fundamental way. And so I never wanted to do that. And there's so many things in the world that I want to do. I mean, I want to read more books, travel more places, see more of everything that it just became a question of organizing. So when I was uh, going to college, I had to study, but maybe I had a girlfriend. So the concept was to take your girlfriend to the library. So how many utilities can you get out of the same action? How much can you do? How real can you be? If you're not going to be real and honest, if we're going to wear masks with each other, where does that ultimately take you? What real connection can you have? Yeah, I mean, it's another powerful point. A word I'll use is authenticity in terms of just the mask that we wear. I know the the mask that I've worn in the past, you know, is around worried about my own brand and being the the Berkeley Darren, the Accenture Darren, just the, the version I thought I had to present to the world. And I found that when you can find the place without that mass, that not only is it more successful, but it's actually just a better way to live your life. You know, I did a, a talk the other day and I was saying, if you want to get some perspective, go to a planetarium and you will immediately see that we live in a universe that has trillions of planets and we're only one world in this axis. And then in this world, we're alive, you know, in a finite 80 year time and world's been around for 4 billion years. And then we live on a planet with seven and a half billion other people. So your problems are, if you have some perspective about it, are probably not as compelling as you think they are. My dad used to have a thing over his desk. Uh, he was high school principal. It said, of all our worries, great and small, the greatest are those that never happen at all. Yeah, fantastic life advice for sure. It's interesting is it's, yeah, the, the finiteness or infiniteness of the galaxy and the, and on the other hand, the finiteness of our own lives and mortality. But is there anything that you practically speaking that you do beyond just reflecting and either going to a planetarium, imagining yourself in that, thinking about your mortality, is there anything that you practically do? Because that's a hard thing for most people to do. Just anything that you do? Well, I always want to treat life as a learning experience and myself not as a finished person. So I read like five newspapers a day. I read books. I've got a book club on uh, Facebook. I want to hear about other people's experiences and learn more. And so notwithstanding whatever age you are, there's still, you're not a finished person. I'm still a bun in the oven cooking 
and I'll be cooking until I leave this mortal coil. So it's um, an attitude of curiosity and wonder at all that you can see and do in the world. Such great advice, but I'm actually curious about that because I was wondering when you were an up and coming sports agent is what were you doing at that point in time? So how were you sharpening your skills? And I know you had an interesting pathway into becoming an agent. Actually, I'd love to start there if you don't mind, and then actually double click in terms of what you actually do to become, become the best that you could be. All I had was those values from my father. So I knew I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I fell into the representation of athletes because I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm at Berkeley. And they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. One of the students was Steve Bartkowski. And in 1975, he became the first player picked overall in the NFL draft. And he asked me to represent him. Well, there was no formal field of sports representation there. Teams had the ability to just hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. There was no absolute right to represent a player. So I had to figure out if this was something I would want to do. And I saw that the athletes were the movie stars and celebrities in the different cities. It was a revelation. And I thought, you know, if I had an athlete retrace their roots and go back to the high school community where they were raised and set up a scholarship fund at the high school or work with the Boys and Girls Club or church, they could put roots down and I could help them make an impact. And at collegiate level, rebond with the alums the, who are natural mentors and make a contribution in some way, whether it was a weight room, a minority scholarship, to plug them into that community. And then to figure out something compelling, some problem in their own lives they'd like to leave some legacy on. So we put together charitable foundations with leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders to to execute a program. So that could be work done, former running back, uh, putting the 200th single mother and her family in the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and having it outfitted, or Patrick Mahomes, 15 in the Mahomes, so where he helps youth charities. So the point was that I realized that through sports, because of the high profile of the athletes, because of their significance as cultural influences, that we could tackle any problem, that we could tackle domestic violence or bullying or um, uh, sex trafficking or racism or the environment. And I had the heavyweight champion Lennox Lewis, who I was working with, the boxer, cut a PSA that said, real men don't hit women. And that could more to do more to trigger behavioral change in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. So that was really the ability to do that or create a sporting green alliance where we took sustainable technologies in wind, solar, recycling, resurfacing and water to stadium arena and practice fields to drop carbon emissions and energy costs 
and transform them into educational platforms where millions of fans could see a waterless urinal or solar panel and think about how do I integrate these concepts into my own life. And so I realized I could do that kind of work in sports. Yeah, there's so much there I'd love to unpack. I mean, you talk about just athletes as brands, as championing your own values in terms of the importance of giving back. And just, do you mind just starting with just the, the athletes as brands? And you saw that, that perhaps it was in this case, Steve Bartowski was um, this larger than life superstar. Is, is, talk to me about how you just came about that and, and then the work you did to actually help athletes create brands for themselves. I knew early on that pro football was going to break loose because of its once a week timing, the action, and that all sports were going to go to a different level. And that would be because of the power of television. So lost leader economics, more money spent on rights fees than a network could ever recoup in sales figures would give them the way to show promos for their Monday through Friday broadcasts like Fox Network on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon, and they could add to the bottom line of their value. Well, the evolution of satellite television, cable television meant not just three channels, but hundreds of them. So it meant more sports programming, more games, more opinion shows, more highlight shows. So that was the first big explosion. And then the creation of the internet meant that athletes could brand themselves, that they could send their own message out, that they could develop a presence on the internet in TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and and Instagram that would give them profile. And it was clear as time went on that baseball and basketball and football were going to burst out into a, a broader market. And then the question then became brand. How many people could name this particular athlete? And if they could name them, could they put some association with them? Yes, he's a football player, a baseball player. If they could do that, did they have some personality uh, association they could, they could put in? Yes, uh, Patrick Mahomes is, is a good guy and he's MVP. Yes, so-and-so is passionate about this issue or this. Yes, so-and-so has this hobby. So it became possible to brand athletes in a unique way. And the currency for doing deals, how much money you got paid for a book or for a speech or for an endorsement became how many followers you have on Twitter or TikTok or or Facebook or LinkedIn or any of the channels. And so the world morphed that way. How much work do you do with your athletes in terms of helping them craft that brand? But, you know, great example of Patrick Mahomes, MVP and a good guy, at least the way that way I perceive him when I see him interviewed is like, how much work do you guys do to, to dig in to find that those values that really matter to them and build that brand for them? So first of all, I profile clients because not everyone is going to be real excited about having an attorney that tells them they have an obligation to serve as a role model and to a trigger imitative behavior. And this is part of the whole concept that if you want to play pro sports, 
pro sports is not bread and butter on the table. It's a discretionary entertainment expenditure that fans make, and you're asking them to place loyalty and care about watching a sport on television or seeing it live or buying merchandise. So if you understand that, then you have that obligation. But we profile uh, self-starters, people with a good heart, because I know that that's the type of person I can help. So it starts that way. And then we talk from the beginning about the fact they're in a fishbowl in a microscope and their behavior is carefully monitored. So you talk about prevention, how you get a designated driver for going someplace where alcohol is served, that you don't go out into a public place unless you're sure you cannot get into a fight with some person that challenges you, that you're appropriate in the way that you treat the opposite sex, that you never use your hands on someone in violence. So a lot of it is preparation for the fact that you want that positive association with things important to the athlete and not negative to come out. And that's incredibly difficult. I know just growing up, how I've grown up, we just didn't have these devices. And I even talked to my kids about that. Just, you know, be careful the way you use these devices. They're powerful tools, but they also can, this, you know, the digital footprint lives on forever. Moreover, they're addictive. So social scientists have carefully addicted that next generation to likes on social media, texts, little bursts of uh, endorphins and uh, dopamine that come with that. So a young girl uh, has nine best friends and she texts one of them and the person doesn't text her back immediately. Oh my God, they don't like me. Uh, I said something wrong, right? And you get anxiety instead of pleasure. Or you post something, if you're over that age group, onto uh, Facebook. And guess what? Only 11 people like it. Oh, my God. You know, what have I done? So you have to be careful because they have very smart scientists have figured out how to addict us to that phone and addict us to the computer in ways where our whole self-image is coming from that. And that's not a constructive thing. You know, absolutely. I think we all can relate to that in some capacity. I think we're all probably guilty of it, at least a tiny bit. But how does that impact the athletes? Because I know there's definitely, you can just see by people's feeds, you know, some look like they're managed by someone, you know, their manager, or agent, or a social media firm. Some are clearly actually, it looks like they're managed, they're managing them actively. Is, is how that, what kind of work do you do in terms of coaching them in terms of their message and some of the do's and don'ts? Well, the fact that you have got to be aware of, when you're speaking, writing, texting of what your audience is and who's out there. This is not a private form of communication. It's a broadcast going out to the world. And that world has many different constituencies and many different points of view. So I like athletes to be politically involved, cause-related, but to avoid partisan (laughs) politics because the country's so truncated now, and to stay away from certain issues. So I think it's appropriate for an athlete who doesn't like bad police shootings or conditions in the inner city to talk about that. But to remember, the audience is made up of many disparate people from 
different backgrounds and you sort of want to appeal to all of them while at the same time promoting positive change in the world. Yeah, it's definitely a, a tricky line to walk for sure. So how has brands, athlete brands, how have they changed over the years? Obviously, recently with the, the NIL deal and, and other things like that. I mean, do you mind just talking a little bit in terms of the concept of brands and how they need to create and reinforce those brands? I know you talk a lot about, or I believe you talk about life after athletics and what's, what's that next play for people. Do you mind just talking a bit about brand and what's next for athletes? Well, the first thing to realize is that the need to brand has come so much earlier. Because what NIL does is all of a sudden a high school athlete is someone that can do endorsements. And so their brand becomes important you know, when they're 16 or 17. It's not just the college senior or junior about to enter sports. So first of all, the whole age in which there's interaction with the players much earlier. In other words, I'm sure there are whole hospitals over here in Newport Beach. I'm sure there are agents looking for healthy women in the maternity wards, right? The age just gets younger and younger. But social media is a matter of having a plan. So we have an athlete who would, who would have a plan. What media are they going to use? What are their messages? What are their causes? And how can they uniquely do that? Now, what happens is if an athlete gets enough followers, that becomes a revenue stream. So that if there are enough followers, all of a sudden commercial companies want to advertise on that. So there are multiple ways to do it. We just created something called NFTs. So NFTs is a, a fungible token. And so the athlete will post a picture in an exciting context or they'll put up a piece of art and then just like art. Now, one may have one of 50, one may be unique. And people bid on these. So they bid hundreds of thousands of dollars on a photo. But here's the thing. It doesn't exist except on the Internet, except on the computer, right? And so you're bidding for what, in your and my youth, we would call air. But that's the shift that's been made in terms of how much reality there is on this method of social communication. How do you help your athletes? When I think about just all these just different things that it just goes beyond training and playing. Now it's you have to manage your brand, your social media, you know, monetizing your your value through NFTs and other things like that. Is is how do you help them or how do they successfully balance those potentially competing views? I think balance is the right word to use. So an athlete's got to understand that they're real existence is how they relate to their teammates and their friends and people and their family and people they interact with. Their public presence is the presence on, on the internet. And so sometimes we bring in experts that uh, are experts in communication to help them. Sometimes I'll tutor someone in our firm will tutor an athlete about how to post. What is a soundbite? If you talk for three minutes, what is the one sentence everybody will quote? What is controversial? 
what is relatable. And one of the things we have to focus on because of the shortness of athletic career is second career. So the point is that if you have an athlete playing for the San Francisco 49ers, what I would say to the Steve Youngs and Brent Jones is, can you think of a business or industry proximate to where you train that might be interesting for second career, whether you want to be a businessman or a media figure or a coach or work in a front office. So Santa Clara is proximate to high tech and huge venture capital. So it's not by chance. So you would tell a Brent Jones, go network. And all of a sudden, when he retires, he has a $4 billion hedge fund. Or Steve Young is master of that, uh, also a, a hedge-type investment firm. So you're looking always to how you can use those off-seasons in those early days to network. And so we'll teach an athlete how to walk up at a banquet and not be self-absorbed, but walk up at a banquet to someone, have a five-minute engaging conversation, get their card, right on the back of it. That was a middle-aged man with a big boil on his nose who talked about plastics or whatever is a mnemonic device to help uh, remember that. And then we create what in the old days used to be called a Rolodex, which is a set of contacts. And through the charitable and community program, hopefully you're meeting the movers and shakers in that city. So we're laying the foundation while a player is still playing for what will be second career. Yeah, I think it's really neat. Just I just see this constant thread. You go back to your your father's values, obviously one of them in terms of giving back and just how it influences the way you you filter clients, the work you do with clients, the work you do even out in the community. And just there's so much philanthropy that you do. I'd love just to hear a little bit more about how you continue to live out such important value. So again, back to my father, he used to say, if you're waiting for someone to fix a problem, as minor as picking a piece of trash up off the floor or as major as racism or climate change, the tendency of people is to wait for they or them, the amorphous they, to solve the problem. Older people, political figures, and he would say, you could wait forever. The they is you, son. You are the they. So it imbues you with a sense of responsibility. And so in the wake of Oklahoma City, I thought nascent skinheads and hate groups were coming to the fore as they are today. And I could create a new generation of um, in the fight against hate. So I funded a program with the Anti-Defamation League that trained 30 young doctors, lawyers, and teachers and housewives to learn about how to spot skinheads and hate groups and promote local help with local police departments with intelligence work and go into crisis situations and go into schools and design programs that promoted ethnic diversity. And... We started in seven cities, moved to 30, and eventually we trained over 10,000 young people in the fight against hate. But instead of waiting around for someone else to do it, there, there is no one else but us. Or with 
Madeline Albright, we were worried about landmines. And so she and I created a program called Adopt a Minefield where you could demine an acre in Mozambique or Angola or Cambodia. It's developing human relations programs where you have young people go to a series of uh, summer camps where they appreciate their ethnic differences and they learn leadership training. How many ways can we make a difference in the world in a, a positive way? And it's even the battle I've had for 30 years against uh, ravages of concussion. I had a crisis of conscience back in the late 80s, early 90s, because players kept getting hit in the head. And we go to doctors and ask how many are too many, and they had no answers. Well, I held a player safety conference with Troy Aikman and Steve Young and Warren Moon and Drew Bledsoe and Rob Johnson, where we had neurologists speak on it. And eventually they told us that three or more is a magic number, and that leads to uh, higher proclivity towards Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, premature senility, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and depression. And I called it a ticking time bomb and an undiagnosed health epidemic. So we've had 17 conferences since then. And I think we're close to finding a way to bring back a concussed brain. But it's all of us in our own lives can do things that are important. Parenting kids well is probably the most important thing that you can do to bring a next generation up with unconditional love and support and good self-esteem. It's also a huge responsibility as us as parents, but you you make some just fantastic points and it's it's so exciting to hear the work that you're doing. I, I always say that if all of us could just give, I don't know, an hour a week, just insert your number, we could solve a lot of the world's problems. But I like the practical advice of your dad of not just waiting for the cavalry, the they. It's start with yourself, do something small, do something tangible, even if it is small. But also I just think realize we all have a platform. It's not like Mahomes, everyone, or people with huge social media platforms where they say something and people listen, but we all have the ability to make a difference and to influence at least one person. You know, on that point, anybody can write a blog. Anybody can express an opinion. Anybody can get on social media. It's opened up the access to all of us to write a column, express an opinion, start a movement, do whatever. And everyone in their own time, in their own way. I don't judge other people. Um, I just applaud their fine efforts. Yeah, I see that you're quite active on social media. So um, a a good new platform for yourself. Little that I know about it. I can post, and that's about the extent of my uh, Luddite skills in that area. Hey, we're all learning and growing in different ways. Well, Lee, what, what's next for you? I think you have a, a third book coming out. Like, what else, What's the future hold for you that, over the next few years? Well, I'm writing a third book that will talk about my experiences with alcoholism and how I recovered and how I rebuilt a business and basic wisdom accrued over uh, a fair amount of years. We're holding an agent academy this summer. We've tried to create a new generation of sports professionals with values and ethics and principles. And so at the agent academy, which you can find on our website, you can learn how to negotiate. You can learn how to recruit. 
You can learn how to brand and market. So it's very practical and I've probably done it 25 times across the country. And so you can keep an eye open for that. I've also been exploring new biomed breakthroughs like hyperbaric oxygen and stem cells and light stem and a brain process called RTMS that stimulates the brain cognitively and Nestri and neurofeedback with brain training. So the exciting thing about that is that people can live longer, be healthier, have many more years of health and good cognitive life. And there's the concept of neuroplasticity, which is believed a brain that was slowing down or having problems only got worse, never better. But now there are modalities and protocols that actually can train a brain to be better and can train a memory to be better. So I'm putting those things together in a way where they can be taken into professional sports. The critical moments in a game now come down to the fourth quarter or maybe the last drive. So if you could stimulate productivity and high energy in critical situations, it'd be worth a fair amount in competitive sports. You also have the issue that the backups in salary cap time, because so much money is paid to a starter, are much worse in talent than the person in front of them. So a player gets injured during a collegiate or professional season, they really can't replace him with someone equivalent. So if you could bring players back quicker and then concussion and then for anybody over the age 40, the ability to live longer, be cognitively fitter. So it's a whole new frontier of biomed where we'll look back at the medicine of today and say, no, really. They put poison in someone's body to cure them of cancer? Really? Because the new treatments and preventive medicine will be so much better. Well, Lee, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate you you sharing this moment, being present here and just having a great conversation. So thanks a lot for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.